Hi, this is the podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for the week ending Friday, the 13th of September. Woo! Uh, Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this podcast this week, you are going to hear our interview with Sophie Hyde, the director of an excellent new film called Animals, based on a book that came before it. And uh, you can hear me talk about my first ever facial. Yes, Ooh. I'm in my mid-30s and I've never had a facial. I think that's fair. Thanks. Uh, also, we had a chat about what's, what's in your rider? What's it, what makes up a good rider? Um, you know, your drinks backstage before a show. Also, we got to chat to Annabelle Crabb about her quarterly essay, uh, Men at Work, Australia's Parenthood Trap. And also for Game Changers, Adam Christo talked to us about a great game called Telling Lies. We also chatted to the Artistic Director of Bangara Dance Theatre, Stephen Page, about their show 30 Years of 65,000. And Simon Hinckley really let the bugs out of the bag with his uh, – he talked insects in art and showed a side to him I just did not know existed. It was really amazing. Mm. It was very excellent. Triple R. Following her award-winning debut feature-length drama 52 Tuesdays, director Sophie Hyde's new film, Animals, adapted from Emma-Jane Unsworth's 2014 novel, premiered earlier this year at Sundance. Now, after a sold-out season at MIFF, it's released Australia-wide September 12, and the director joins us now. Sophie Hyde, welcome to Breakfasters. Oh, thanks for having me in. Pleasure. Uh, Can you talk us through the genesis and idea behind Animals? Yeah, I mean, obviously it was originally a book, a a beautiful book called Animals, written by Emma-Jane Unsworth. Um, I was sent a script and the book on the same day, and I wasn't really sure if I was looking for any material to do that wasn't my own. Mm. But I picked up Animals, and I fell kind of... I didn't fall in love with the characters, but I felt like they were just these very familiar characters, this very familiar way of living and very visceral kind of experience that I didn't feel I was getting to see on screen. Mm -hmm. And so I felt really excited by that idea and went back to the producers and said, uh, this is how I'd make the film. Yeah, right. And, And so I came on and we did about four drafts together. And set in Dublin. Set in Dublin, yeah. The book's set in Manchester, so we moved to Dublin mostly for financial reasons, but it became like this gorgeous, you know, literary party city. Well, I wanted to ask you about that because Dublin's kind of like the new literary place at the moment again. You've got writers like Sally Rooney coming out of there, also bands like Fontaine's DC who were all kind of, who you hear in the film. Like there was a scene where I'm like, ah, Fonta, I love that you've done that. How much did um, that being in Dublin and being an island and a part, kind of transposing yourselves into that scene influenced the film in the end. Yeah, it does influence it a huge amount. Like one of the things I loved about the book was how specifically set in Manchester it was. So to move it to Dublin, there was a lot of questions about that. But then you go to Dublin and you're right, there's like poetry on the street corners and there's like music everywhere and everyone's drinking a lot. And um, there's also a really political kind of fight for women's rights over their own bodies, which was going on while we were there. Repeal the 8th vote was happening. And so it felt perfect for us, you know. And the, the music scene's so amazing. And so one of our ways of getting into like what where would these women actually be in Dublin was to get to know a whole lot of people in that scene and that's how you kind of we infiltrated Dublin quite fast you know without that without the trust of some of the locals you know we wouldn't have found the right kind of places yeah. and part of that is like seeing Fontaines and and the place that they um, play all the time 
they were not very well known. We nearly put them oh, in the really? movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, they were they were starting to be, you know, and um, I love I love them, yeah. you know. And the band that's in the film, Otherkin, also uh, are doing a lot of touring. Like, yeah, very cool. It seems um, I found it to be quite a, a a movie that spoke to our generation, um, and that's something that I you know I ha- we haven't seen on screen. Obviously, the, the big thing on that I enjoyed about it obviously was seeing a relationship w- between two women. Um, there was that, but this whole idea of generation and that. You know, years ago, it, it, we were supposed to have everything done in our 20s and it just seems like for decades now, it's like, no, the 20s, are, we get our shit together in our 30s and that's never really been reflected on screen um, until now. Um, was that one of the, the, the bigger things that why you wanted to do the film? Yeah, I certainly... I feel like there's this idea that, you know, you become an adult and there's, it hits a point where you work that out. But one of the things for all of us, and 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 it, it will, is this idea that you don't. You suddenly realise I've been trying to do everything. I've been trying to reject convention and party really hard. And apparently, somehow, I was supposed to write my novel at the same time and become an adult and fall in love and mm. all of these things. But how have you achieved all of that if you're partying that hard? You know, <laughs> you know, it's like. I think there are these moments where you suddenly think, oh, gosh, life doesn't just flow on forever. And and about the age of 30, that does happen. I yeah. think, too, the uh, seeing... I mean, I felt... I watched this film and I felt like I was watching parts of my past, been people that I knew. I've never watched a film and felt so familiar with the characters mm. and with the setting, even though it's in a different country. It was really extraordinary in that sense. And I, the, the crux of the film is the, I guess, the development of female friendships and this particular friendship and it was such a nuanced look at friendship the idea that it's not just like sex in the city or it's you know that you can fall in and out of friendships and there can be back and forth and they're kind of sometimes like relationships did you how did you um how did you kind of get that out of the actors how did you get them to kind of bring that to life on screen because it's just done so well Mm. i mean it's in the original novel and it's in the material, I think, in part, that kind of slightly codependent, very physical relationship that is equally challenging and uplifting as it is difficult and problematic. You mm. know? Um, I think it is really familiar, you know, and I, I'm so amazed that it's not explored more, yes. that kind of world. And it's really familiar um, and I think it can be said in lots of different cities. Like Melbourne's a, a perfect city for animals too, you know this kind of culture exists across the world in different pockets and places. And so all of us coming together to make the film came from different places but all had that shared familiarity with it. And so coming into it, there was a lot of conversation about that and um, I'm a very revealed or revealing uh, director so I reveal myself to the cast and ask them to do the same back to me. And so those conversations went deep really fast and then, you know, we're starting to do intimacy exercises and get to know the city together and there was a lot of just working around we did rehearsals that were very um freewheeling they weren't so much rehearsing scenes they were kind of delving into the characters and our own experience and so the two women in it they hadn't met before but they were great admirers of each other and so when they came together they just launched straight in like we're going to do this we're going to find this intimacy it's like what they're both really good at i think mm. there's lots of wine consumed in the film a lot is that, <laughs> is that 
you know, is it a prop? Is there, is there, what about after work? You know, it, was it as collegiate and fun <laughs> off camera as it is in on film? Uh, it sounds so saccharine, but it was really fun. We did have a great time and we all got to know each other very well. We were like on school camp because we were all in a different place and mm. all the people that were there were like the locals. Um, yeah, like we did all drink quite heavily I mean I was working pretty hard so a bit more like Jim the pianist in the film you know there's only so far you can go Mm. if you have to get up at six in the morning or more and so everyone had that kind of level of professionalism as well but there was certainly a feeling of um, wanting to tap into that lifestyle and um, more than you might normally Mm -hmm. Uh, so certainly Holiday and Alia they're a little bit closer to their characters when we're in Dublin than they normally are. <laughs> Just a little touch, yeah. you know. And, um, but that worked for everybody. I mean, we all have, like, all of us would relate to all of the characters. Yeah. So, you know, there's a feeling that sometimes you just really want to party that hard. But you also, you know, we're all fairly dedicated artists. So we also have times where we don't do that at all. Mm. And so being able to tap into all of those parts was important. I now just imagine you drinking white wine, hanging out with Fontaine's DC for a couple of months. <laughs> I don't really drink white wine. Okay. Particularly after the film because there's so much white wine in it. Yeah. It's like, whoa, makes me want to vomit. <laughs> the, but the film explores, I suppose, the, uh, the tension between the artist's life and art. Mm. Um, How do you navigate that? Mm, What a great question. (laughs) I mean, just as messily as those girls do, really. Um, You know, I'm really taken and admire someone like the pianist in in the film, Jim, who gets up and practices. And I really um, envy artists that are painters, dancers, pianists, that have a practice that they can kind of return to all the time. Their muscles are very strong, you know. And as a filmmaker, that's really different. And so you, for me, I'm always trying to work out how to do that to kind of keep doing exercises and work on the material that I'm doing. Mm. That doesn't always mean being on set. Mostly that's about writing and interrogating ideas, you know. Um, and that's how. I mean, I have a family and... Um, I also like to drink, and, um, but I really like to work. So, you know, though, the, those things, that's what we definitely explore in animals is like where is your freedom? Is freedom in just being at the party all the time or is it in creation? Mm. And, and for Laura, for me as well, that's where freedom is. There's a railing against uh, suburbia in the film. You, you herald from Adelaide. Do you think, <laughs> do you think place, place matters in terms of creativity? Does place matter for sure. Um, but, you know, you if somewhere's boring, it's mostly because you're boring, right? right? Um, yeah, I mean, the greatest thing about Adelaide, aside from it being a lovely bunch of people and a great place to live, you know, it is a lovely lifestyle. But you also put your head down and work quite a lot. You know, it's, it's not a distracted place. Um, when we decided to stay, we're a company of a group of people, sort of seven of us. And um, when we stayed, everyone thought we were crazy. No one stayed in Adelaide. Like, but now people start to stay. That's partly because, yes, there are small bars and things like that. Like, it's also always been a great art city. So we have a great arts festival and the Fringe Festival. Mm. And so you do have these injections of um, the outside world. But they're not around all the time. So a lot of the time it's very quiet and it can feel a bit stifling in that quietness. Mm. Um, but when you're busy and working, you know, we have we do loads of our own kind of story rooms and bring people over to work with us and that becomes exciting. Yeah. Did you, in the process of making this film, did it kind of make you reassess your life or your 20s 
uh, and did you take anything out of it? Do you kind of see friendships in a different way or do you view your own past in a different way? Yeah, I mean, I have, although I relate very strongly to the characters, I had a really different path to them. Like I had a child at 27 and a business and I was making movies and everything. So, for instance, my sister would see me as the sister in the movie with the baby and the wine. The wine. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, in fact, when she saw it, she rang me and she was like, um, is that a little close to the bone? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, which it didn't come from me, it came from Emma. But that's the thing, you know, we all move in and out of those parts. It certainly made me enjoy that thinking about those friends that yeah. I have and, like, um, that they are kind of heartbreaking when they sort of start to go away because they're so intense. Any separation is really heartbreaking. But you sort of, it's like we've never recognised it because romance is put at the centre of everything. Totally, yeah. And so then suddenly you're like, all that hurt and that feeling doesn't have a name or a place. It's like we're supposed to just get on with it because we found love, you know? I think that in some ways we've done a disservice to ourselves and it's nice to start talking about that. Mm. What, what about the, uh, you know, premiered at Sundance? Is that as exciting as it sounds and the, doing the festival tour and, uh, you know, presenting your film to the world at premieres and things like that? This one was really fun. I mean, Brian, who's the cinematographer, editor, and I are partners and he and I stayed with Alia and Holiday in a ski resort lodge. Oh, oh. And so, and truly, like, you're just there like, what are we doing? We're premiering at Sundance and we're in the spa drinking whiskey right, right. beforehand. Okay. So easy. <laughs> and the snow's there. So, yes. <laughs> but it's also, like, all of the things that go with that, which is, you know, you do it and then you're like, okay, what does that mean? What does everyone think? Um, and then you're doing, you're sort of schlepping around a lot on planes and going, like, this is an amazing life. But also... There's so much anxiety and yes. doubt and all of those things that go alongside with that. So mm. it never really feels like that. Like yeah. you have to kind of remind yourself of those moments, like, look what we're doing, yeah. making snow angels <laughs> from the spa. Oh, my yeah. God. Well, thank you so much for schlepping in here. Uh, Animal is <laughs> released nationally in cinemas on September 12th and we've been speaking with director Sophie Hyde. Sophie, congratulations. Thank you. And thanks so much for coming in. Thanks very much. Melbourne's own. Triple R. Uh, just a little recap. Um, early um, earlier this morning, I talked about how I did a gig on the weekend. I did my gig in Gisborne. This is the uh, I didn't know. I had Gisborne written in my diary, and I didn't know why for for a long time. Anyway, I figured it out. I had a gig in Gisborne, um, which is on Saturday night. It was with Tom Gleeson and Dave Hughes. Big night, um, but it was a great gig. But here's the thing: it's the it's the little things in the gig that make it a good a good one. Right. You know, um, I'm talking um, just at the right venue, like just a bit of attention to, to detail, um, lights, microphone, where the audience is sitting, all that kind of stuff, but also the rider. <laughs> it's amazing how the difference you get backstage in, especially at comedy gigs, what kind of things you can get backstage. And I'll tell you what, the one – on Saturday night was one of the best riders I've ever I've ever had. Please tell me what constitutes a great rider for you. Well, for starters, um, already had the booze there. I love a tub of booze. Yeah, right? it makes you feel safe, doesn't it? Yeah, I love a tub. There's ice in there. There's a different selection of drinks, including non-alcoholic. There's water. There's soft drinks. Mm. There's a couple of cans of 
whatever and, and wine. Oh, I love it. Love it. Yeah. Right? Do you know what I like about it is I know what I'm allowed to have. Yeah. Don't, and you don't have to ask. It's not an uncomfortable conversation. Yeah. Mm. None of that. People, you know, sorry, you want to say something? No, just when there's a tub as well, when you're rooting around, there might be a little surprise. Yeah. True. Under the surface. Yeah. Yeah. Who, who doesn't like surprises? Exactly. Yeah. Little can of kombucha. kombucha. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Could be that. Maybe some Fanta. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's not something I would, but, but yeah, I'll take a Fanta for sure. So, for, so it had that. It had a tub of, tub of booze and non-alcoholic drinks, right? Love, tick. Next. It had a, a selection of packets of chips. That's great. So oh. Twisties. Yeah, chips. Yep. Chips. Sometimes I don't want to eat a whole meal mm. or also no. I don't want deli meats. Chips. Yeah. Chips. Just a packet of chippies, right? Yeah, I love Different it. Different selection of oh. chippies as well, right? Also, you know when you get an option of chips, you always, I always get a chance. I like a chance to eat something I wouldn't buy. Mm. Yes. So say I wouldn't buy chicken twisties anymore i love them as a kid but they have chicken twisties i'd just be like this Yum. is my time Gonna eat them. yep yes and also the added bonus of packets of chips you can take one home for the drive home oh, that's yeah. exactly what i did, did you yep. it? Okay. Took, a, took a packet of twisties <laughs> I, I took actually i took a lot home with me yeah is that a, is that an well, okay thing to do yeah i asked i said can i and they said yeah this is for you to take home like if you want and i'm like okay <laughs> Because how's this? The did other... they say that? Yes, they did. Okay. Yeah, big, big tin of roses, chocolates, <gasps> like the big tin. I'm like, I love that tin. I want that tin, whole tin of chocolates. Yes, please. They go, yeah, that's for you. Take it. Really? Yes. Did you so eat roses? Christmas. Did you eat them when you were there? No, it was. I. Uh, they said, yeah, because it was other gift. Yeah, it was a gift. Take that. Oh my god. The bottle. I had one glass of wine while I was there, and they went, "Do you want to take this?" And I went, "Yes." <laughs> <laughs> So they said just because no one else is drinking the wine, so they said you just take that bottle, take, finish that off when you get home, and then they gave me a bottle of red as well. So I took two bottles of wine. It's just the most what a score. A, yeah, plus a big tin of roses chocolates, and then someone else had made um, uh, cookies, and so I got that, and it was like um, oh my god, Mars bar slice, Rocky Road, get all, out, all gift wrapped. Like you know, it was like it was it was like at a fate. You know how you you know people are selling like my favorite place in the world yes. is a bake sale. A bake sale, yeah. It was like the bake sale had come to me. So the cookies, Mars bar oh. slice, and um, and Rocky Road hedgehog. Yep, I didn't get that, but right. those three things I got. I'm like, this is the best rider I've ever I've ever come across. It's just the little touch of the homemade. Mm. Yes, with the chips. Oh. Yep. What a dream. Bonus, bonus, bonus. What do you want in your rider? Oh, I feel like think... you've summed I, I don't know what, what I could do better than that. I hadn't thought about the idea of having homemade baked goods. For me, that is a total dream. Do you know what it is? It's a surprise element of it. Yes. Like you were saying. Yeah, exactly. Um, look, I, when I, just give me the Wi-Fi password. Like I don't want to oh. ask for it. I don't want to have to inquire about it. I, don't, I might not even want it. Just give it to me. Have it on the wall. Have it on a piece the of wall. Paper. Yeah. Exactly. That would be one. Here, there's another bonus if they have like just a phone charger there for you. Yeah, oh, no, great idea. Have all these things I've never thought of. Great before. idea. Uh, chewing gum. 
You like cho- oh yeah, yeah. like a mint just just in case yeah mint whatever that's the most commonly asked question too I find at those kinds of because people eat then you're gonna go and perform yeah and I see some gum I, ju- I get that freshen up yeah if I've um, I tend not to eat before I go on stage anyway like a meal or anything I'd certainly have a rocky road or something if that's available <laughs> lollies cheese platter yum all of that but if, I have this weird thing if I've eaten and I think I've got bad breath and that means I'm gonna have a bad gig. So right. the yeah. mints, yeah, absolutely. I said, I just kind of, uh, not that I'll have a bad gig, but the people in the front row will be able to smell my breath for some reason. Mm. How do you feel about a game, so Scrabble or some Uno? Because for me, there's, when there's a lot of sitting around, I get a bit uncomfortable. Oh, if you're with oh, people you don't yeah. know, I feel uncomfortable. Yeah. I'd like the idea of going to want to play some boggle. Yeah, give me give me the yeah. day's newspapers. There'll be a quiz in there for if anyone stops by. It is no that's surprise that you, you want the day's <laughs> newspapers. Yeah, but that's a good bonding thing. Yep. Oh, yeah. So Opening play, it up. You and, know, you can mm. all do the quiz together. Oh, I thought you were going to be antisocial with it and be like, you just want to sit there no, and no, no. have your own little and, time and to and yourself. As, you, as you're saying, give me a deck of cards in, in rap, a new yes, deck of cards. Yes, a new deck of cards. Oh, Why yeah. does it have to be new? You because know. it's special. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and then, then you, also you could take it home. That's, that's right. Exactly. And, yeah. you, you you know, you don't have to go through it to see if anything's missing. Yes. Oh, mm. I just like the idea of having anything. Often when I'd work at, um, say, music festivals backstage, there was kind of like a hierarchy of media. And we were always at this weird level where people forget to give us food vouchers, but you couldn't leave. Like, yeah. say we were working backstage at a festival in my old job when I was a music editor. Mm. So you haven't got, like, a food voucher, but backstage there's not many – there's not much food available unless you have a food voucher yeah. and you don't have time to run out to the festival. So I spent so much time sneaking into – like, sneaking food passes and, like, sneaking into food areas and trying to, to convince food. the ladies or men who were, you know, dishing out the food for everyone backstage or the artists to give me a free plate of food. It was really – Quite oh. sad. See? Quite sad. Not, oh, yeah. You want, it's you want sad. food backstage? Yeah. It just think of me. That, yeah. Like, I actually would not require much. Just to be thought of, mm. uh, to me, is is enough. Yeah. I have another one. Yes. yes. But uh, I, you know, I should bring this myself. But give me a new pair of socks. Oh, really? Yeah. Because a, a new... <laughs> All right, that's <laughs> taking it too. Well, maybe. Oh, yeah, I was going to say fresh pair of undies, but for, for some people would like that. Yeah. Well, we'll it's it's, it's basically sure. the equivalent. It's it's as close as you can get to having a shower without having a shower. What's yes. happening in your socks? So, what are you with your own socks? Because they just take them well, home. I, well, the, you know, it might be after the show. I want to feel new, or when I arrive at the venue, I want to feel new. What's that? What socks? I don't know. Like they'd have to know your size. The that's color. right. Yeah, well, yeah I mean, most socks are, most people are like I think in the range. Yeah, socks aren't real. They're not really sizes, mm. are they? A basket of socks, like various different socks in there that you can just take one out. Uh, yeah, exactly. Oh, that's oh. a good idea. Mm. Yeah. You just take, take, just take, help yourself to a pair of yeah. socks. Yeah, I mean, this isn't that extreme. Kanye, Kanye's asked for his uh, the carpet to be ironed to get the bumps out. So you know, to be ironed. Yeah, oh, yeah. Good th- an iron. Oh yeah, an iron and an ironing yeah. board. Yep. Just in case you want to smooth your socks out. If we hit the level with socks, though, I wonder what what. There's something undies. Oh yeah, undies a bit gross, isn't it? Just let that go. You need to. Yeah. You need new undies can't be trusted. You actually have to wash them. Oh, oh that's yes. a good point. Yeah, I have a story. So about that. pre-washed. Oh, I don't want to hear. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> really? I want to hear the story. No, 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 no. <laughs> Triple R. 
Walkley Award winner Annabelle Crabb is an ABC political writer and broadcaster whose books include Losing It, Rise of the Rudbot, The Wife Drought and the quarterly essay Stop at Nothing, The Life and Adventures of Malcolm Turnbull. Her latest, Men at Work, Australia's Parenthood Trap, argues that gender equity cannot be achieved until men are as free as women to leave the workplace and she joins us now. Annabelle Crabb, welcome to Breakfast. Hello, thank you very much. Absolute pleasure. Now, on, on June 17, 2010, the Australian Parliament legislated the nation's first paid parental leave scheme. In that nearly 10 years, what have we learned? Well, we've learned that that scheme has been super helpful, particularly for low-paid women who have had an opportunity to have parental leave that's paid. Um, But something else has been really clearly apparent from the patterns of who's using that scheme. So in the, how many years is that? Eight years that it's been in operation, 1.2 million women have used uh, paid parental leave, according to the scheme, and 6,250 men. So less than one half of 1% of the people who've used that scheme have been men. Now, it is a scheme that's designed to give women you know, a break after giving birth, and it is you apply for it as the birth mother. You can apply the balance of the leave to your partner, whoever that is, but it doesn't really happen. In the private sector, which often um, offers some form of parental leave, it's about one in 20 of parental leave recipients that are men. So in Australia, we know that men don't really take parental leave beyond maybe sometimes they take two weeks off, um, which in my house always involves building a flat pack shed. I don't know why that is. I don't know. Every time. Three kids, sheds every time. Also lots of trips to the chemist. Um but the interesting thing is that men are also really, um, they are twice as likely to be rejected, um, according to a study that Bain did a couple of years ago, as women when they ask for flexible work as well. We have this amazing situation in Australia where we have a really high rate of part-time work, much higher than the United States, for instance, but it's all women. Like So about 45% of mothers work part-time, about 4% of dads. It's just... Changing the way you work to accommodate your family responsibilities is totally a chick thing to do. Mm. And men don't really do it. So I've written this essay looking at why, because it seems to me in this sort of gender work, you know, balance debate, we spend a lot of time looking at women and the decisions that women make and how they balance and do all this sort of stuff. But we actually don't spend all that much time looking at men. And if you actually chart their behaviour over the last sort of 50 years, over which time women have massively changed the way they live and work, men, not really much change at all. Mm. And you use the word discrimination. How does that manifest itself? Well, in Australia, it's legal to discriminate against men in the area of um, uh, childbirth and pregnancy and stuff. So, And that is in the Sex Discrimination Act, oddly enough. It's the major legislative (laughs) instrument that is supposed to uh, dissuade employers from discriminating between the sexes. But Section 31 of that Act says, nothing in this Act prohibits an employer for making special arrangements for women around pregnancy and childbirth. Now, I get why that clause is in there. It was legislated in 1984 um, when women were sort of really flooding into the workforce and and encountering all sorts of difficulties. But now I think it is actually quite actively discriminatory against men. Um, You have – there's a lot of evidence that millennial fathers actually want to work differently. Um, The Diversity Council of Australia did some great research a couple of years ago where uh, discovered that millennial fathers – 
want very significantly to change the way they work, work flexibly. Something like 79% of them said that they would want, they wanted to work a, a compressed work week, for instance, but only 25% of them were actually doing it. So mm. what is that gap about? Mm. Now, I think it is in Australia due to a justified fear among lots of men that if they ask for flexible work or for parental leave or whatever, that they will be judged differently in terms of their commitment to the workplace, their promotability, their employability. And that is a deep-seated cultural issue that is actually not usually spelled out in HR manuals and whatever. Like lots of companies will have, oh, hi, we have parental leave, but the coded message in lots of workplaces underneath that is, yeah, but it's just mainly for the ladies. Do we have kind of evidence that that's the case, that workplaces are biased when it comes to dishing out parental leave? Well, we have the take-up rate that yeah. says that it's very low. Um, but more and the cultural kind of... Yeah, look, yeah. there is there is um, quite a bit of research. Um, so a couple of years ago, the um, Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Commission did a study about pregnancy and return to work, and there was a chunk of that study that was about men, and they found that about 25% of the men who had taken parental leave experienced some sort of adverse consequences when they returned to work, Every anything from sort of harassment and adverse commentary to being to losing their jobs or losing hours and so I think in Australia there is the presumption that women when they have a a child or have a family will change the way that they work and that's unremarkable but that it's sort of a bit unusual for men to do it Mm. but you know it's possible to change these attitudes really quickly and it's really more about employers being aware of of what their presumptions are and then making a um, a concerted effort to let men know directly that those policies are actually there for them too. In the essay, because I don't want this, the essay is not a giant rant, by the mm. way. It's just like I'm, I'm really interested in this subject and I think that sometimes we approach this subject in a kind of like gender warfare way and I think there are real reasons why men um, don't take up flexible work and parental leave. Um, and I have a look at a couple of employers that have made a, um, some big decisions and changed behaviour um, in the last few years. Well, yeah, I wanted to ask you about, um, because Medibank introduced the idea of eliminating the notion of primary right. and secondary carers. Um, and I guess, you know, I just want to know what effect has that had? And also given that um, not all parents include a dad and a mum yep, um, and how that affects, you know, same-sex couples as well. Well, the the terminology, lots of firms and certainly the federal scheme, the public scheme, use the terminology primary carer rather than birth mother. But realistically, that's what it means, right? So mm. even in couples I know where there's two women, it's really like only the birth mother can apply for the leave and then you've got all these sort of hiccups about transferring the leave to somebody else. It's actually not that easy. Mm. The scheme is pretty much designed for the birth mother. Now, um, and there are kind of some reasons for that. Obviously, physically, if you're giving birth, you're going to need time to recover. But there's lots of countries around the world. In Australia, our public parental leave scheme is um, one of the least generous in the OECD. Like, it's really low ball. Um, there's lots of other countries that have done really imaginative things where they um, they uh, make some of the paid parental leave available only if the non-birth parent takes it. And that actually drives a huge pickup in the participation, um, particularly of dads. And um, there's a lot of evidence to show that the more engaged 
in a child's life the father is early on, the more um, equal the division of labour will be later down the track, right? So it's um it is it's in Australia it's a very settled assumption about who will be taking parental leave. But the interesting thing about um. I mean, I've looked at Medibank in a big way because about 18 months ago they completely changed their paid parental leave package inside their company and they've said, right, we're doing away with this idea of the primary carer because really, you know, why do we have to have a primary carer in mm, if there's yeah. two parents, why can't they both be parents? So their offering now is if you have um, a child because you've given birth to a child or you're um, the father of a child or you're, you and your partner have had a child or you've adopted or fostering, whatever, you get paid parental leave and you and both parents can have it. You know, if you're both at Medibank, you can both have it and you can structure it however you like in one chunk, two chunks work three days a week until it's exhausted. And that has actually driven a huge increase just over the one year in the participation of men at Medibank that went from about 2% of participants in paid parental leave to about 30%. Mm. So, you know, these are old and crusty assumptions, Mm. but they can actually be changed super quickly just by being attentive to the issue and understanding what's going on. Well, one of the assumptions when a baby comes on the scene and amidst the host of changes that happens within a family is that uh, fathers... turn into more ideal employees. Yeah. Yeah, this is a really crazy concept um, and it's not rela- not just restricted to Australia. It's um, a very common one called the fatherhood premium. NatSem did this amazing um, modelling a few years back where they worked out if they took a 25-year-old man and calculated what he could expect to earn over 40 years of an average career. And they worked out that over 40 years of an average career, 25-year-old man could expect to earn $2 million, but it would go up to 2.5 if he had kids. Because the assumption built around our historic notion of what is an ideal employee is that children make a man more dependable, reliable, more likely to stick around, bigger incentive to you know work hard and whatever. So they did the same thing with a woman and this, a 25-year-old woman, similar qualifications, similar average career, 40 years, could expect to earn $1.9 million, But if she had kids, that went down to $1.3. Mm-hmm. And that's because we build in to our responses to parents the idea that a father probably has got a spouse that's running around doing all of the, you know, remembering that it's Mufti Day and, you know, picking up dry cleaning or or whatever, you know, all those hundreds of billions of tasks that cluster around you when you have a household kids, Um, but that women will be doing that stuff. And you know what? That is largely true because, you know, in Australia, um, women do about 1.8 times as much domestic work as men. But look, you know, this can degenerate really quickly to a big argument between the sexes, like, you don't do enough, you pick up after yourself, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> the really interesting thing, I reckon, is um, even where men are thinking like, well, actually, I, I really would like to work differently, I would like to be able to balance my life a bit better, there is an extent to which they feel constrained in some senses, in some cases quite accurately and worried that they will be treated differently in work as a result. Mm. And I think that that is a real tragedy because, you know, I mean, I've had three kids. I've worked sort of throughout. I've done a lot of juggling and done a, quite a bit of crying, but um, <laughs> it has been a great experience. And I reckon I've done different jobs than I would have if I had, you know, had not had kids just because I've been forced into like, okay, what am I going to do now? That job's not going to work anymore. I'll change. And that's been quite 
enriching, even though it's been quite crackers at times. Mm. And I think it's actually I, f- I feel a bit sorry that men get kind of like shut out from that a little bit. And there's also the point that wherever a bloke is feeling sort of obliged to remain at work for X number of hours, then if he's had a baby with a woman, which is a common arrangement, then um, there is a knock-on effect to that woman that she's then expected to really stay out of the workforce for longer, which has a huge amount of effects on not only on um, participation in the workforce but also long-term things like women's superannuation, which is um, absolutely dire in this country. I mean, women will always retire on average, with a superannuation balance much less than men. Just really quickly, we do have to finish up. Oh, I could go on for hours. I know, no, but no. I won't because I read the fear in your you eyes. Start, I know, I'm the, but you start. You open the essay talking to Scott Morrison and Josh Frydenberg oh, yeah. about their experiences mm. as fathers. Yeah. Do politicians care about this issue? Is it something that we will see policy change in? Um, I think in my 20 years reporting politics, I just, and this has driven much of my work in this area, I notice mothers behaving really differently from fathers. And, you know, we had this national heart attack a few years ago yeah. when Jacinda Ardern said, well, I'm, you know, having a baby. And I was like, oh, my God, how's she going to manage it? This is crazy. And then less than a year later, we installed for the first time in 40 years um, a prime minister and a treasurer who both have little kids. And no, no, nobody asked them about, oh, how are you going to manage this big, these big jobs with mm. these little kids? Because they're men no one thinks to ask and I think that's a bit of a tragedy because you know men do the Australian Institute of Family Studies did an amazing um, study recently of the amount of work-life stress that men are experiencing and it's really significant and if they can move into um, jobs where they have more flexibility then their mental health really improves so this is actually a huge issue. And if you could pick one example from overseas Canada, Iceland Oh man, it's always Scandinavia (laughs) It's always Scandinavia Well they do this thing where they they have like heaps of paid parental leave, like it's sort of like nearly a year and they make three months of it available only if the dad takes it and that increased their participation of men in paid parental leave um, just from negligible up to really significant, and they have one of the most even divisions of domestic labour in the OECD. Well, you've said this isn't about social engineering, it's about social de-engineering. Yeah, it is. Mm. It's more freedom for everyone. Because I've never, I never argue that everyone should be forced to do something. They just should be free to do what suits them and their family. Yes. Well, uh, there are so many other assumptions tackled in the new quarterly essay, Men at Work, Australia's Parenthood Trap, out now through Black Ink. And Annabelle Crabb, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for listening. Triple R. Has dropped in for his eye-opening game changes segment. Hi, Adam. Hi, how are you? Yeah, excellent. Um, I'm pretty intrigued about what you've brought in. Yeah, I brought in something weird. I'm gonna I'm gonna start by asking you questions. Have you ever wanted to be an investigative journalist? Yes. Have you ever wanted that Four Corners experience? <laughs> yes. Um, Have you ever wanted to solve a crime through Google? I want to crack it all open. Uh, no. Yes. Yes. No. This. Have you ever wondered to yourself, <laughs> is someone lying to I me? I want to say yes, but no. <laughs> <laughs> but keep going. Maybe I'll find one to to get on to. Well, if yes was was the answer to any of those, this is a really great game for you. It's called Telling Lies, and it's okay, a, I'm into it. Yep, <laughs> I said yes the whole time. Excellent, Telling Lies. You will be shocked to know is about lies. It is a new game. It comes out on Annapurna Interactive. It came out about a week or two ago. It's from a game developer and director called Sam Barlow. He created a game a few years ago called Her Story, which was a really inventive unique game in which you 
sifted through, uh, so like a police station's recorded footage of um, sit-down interviews with a witness at a crime scene and during a crime, and you had to piece together what happened with that crime. Is she telling the truth? What's going on? What are the (gasps) mysteries? By searching keywords. So she might say a phrase or a name, and then you'd write it down, and then you'd go search in the database and pull up other videos based off that word and then go through them and piece together the mystery and the story. Mm-hmm. Telling lies takes that exact same process and conceit, the idea of searching keywords and videos, and expands it in a really big, uh, more dramatic way. So now there are Hollywood actors involved in this in this game. So it stars Logan Marshall Green from Prometheus and Upgrade and a whole bunch of other things. He's that guy that I, I think of as, um, I don't know, he just pops up in action movies and he always has a beard. He's in this. <laughs> Um, you've got <laughs> Alexandra Ship, who was recently in X-Men Apocalypse, playing as Storm. Uh, you've got Carrie Bish from Halt and Catch Fire and Narcos and Scrubs. And you've also got Angela Sarafin from Westworld. So they're the four primary characters of this game. I'm not going to say the names of their characters because part of the initial mystery of this game is who are all these people and what are they named? Right. Um, so this game opens up with footage of a woman walking into a bare apartment you don't know who she is or what's going on. The apartment looks a little bit kind of like bedraggled and like it, it looks really run down. She picks up a laptop and opens it up. And then you realize that you are actually that woman and you are going through the laptop that she has just booted up. And so the laptop appears to be a stolen laptop from the NSA that has been given to her by probably a whistleblower or a hacker. There's like a little text document on it that you can open up that says, hey, make sure you get rid of this laptop as soon as you're done using it. The feds will pick you up at some point. So maybe destroy the laptop if you can and throw it into a couple of different bins. And she opens up a program on the laptop, which is an NSA surveillance program that captures recordings of people's phone conversations, their FaceTimes, their Skype conversations, hidden camera conversations, surveillance footage from like camera towers and various other things. And particularly, um, She has asked the hacker to provide her with footage of four particular people and their interactions over a two-year period. And then it is up to you to figure out what is going on between these four people. What are the lies that they are all telling each other? What is the bigger mystery in this story? By watching these videos, taking notes as you're watching them and then searching for keywords based on the conversations that are happening. A lot lot of pressure on these actors, huh? A lot of pressure on them, but a lot of pressure on you as well to kind of put together the story and to really feel your way through it. Um, so the game opens up and it gives you an initial keyword. So the character types the word love into the database and five videos pop up. And so the first video that you can watch is one of Logan Marshall Green's character sitting to camera and talking about the first time he fell in love to someone on a one-way Skype conversation. And that's when you really pick up quite quickly that you can't hear the other person in the conversation. You're only getting the one-sided conversation of the person talking at the camera. So if they're having a Skype conversation, you're only getting that one moment that they are. So you have to kind of figure out who they're talking to as well. And each video has a timestamp on it. So you know the date and the time that it's happening. And you might start going, okay, someone's mentioned the tooth fairy in this conversation i'm going to search tooth fairy now so i can try and find the other video that corresponds to this and see who they were talking to and so you find yourself watching videos back to back kind of trying to place together the conversations and see one side and then the other side of them would you would you want play this game with a notepad beside your computer i had a notepad beside me and within like half an hour it turned into a full conspiracy web wow. and so you know I, I had myself writing down questions like who's snow white and then underlining it four times and then 
you know, is her name really Melissa? And then, no, it's not. It's Isabella. And then question mark after that. And, <laughs> you know, questions like, who's he talking to? Who's Ava? What's this project? And um, love it. It's really fun. There is, a, there is a definite bigger kind of conspiracy theory that seems to involve the FBI that's tied up into these characters. I'm keeping it really vague because I think the biggest fun of this game is figuring out all those webs yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, but I found a video very early in which seemed to be an FBI director kind of giving someone instructions to go onto deep cover. And then I was like, who are they giving the instructions to? What are all these code words that they're talking about? I have to search all of those. But then I found myself veering off really quickly because I started getting really focused on conversations that seemed to be irrelevant to the broader story of the mystery, but I found very compelling in a character sense. So Mm -hmm. Logan Marshall Green's character has many Skype conversations with his wife and his daughter. And... There's almost an uncomfortable nature of watching these videos because you're watching footage that they don't know is being recorded by the NSA. You're essentially that that journalist or that spy that's that's watching all this hidden camera footage. It feels very surveillance state. It feels in the moment of, you know, people wondering about whether Amazon or Google are are listening to us and with all their devices. Um, But I found those conversations really interesting because they seem to play on this idea of what is it like to conduct a relationship or to have a family that's long distance where you're having these kind of intimate conversations with your children or your 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 partner via such a long distance and there was something about the way that the actors performed in those scenes that really drew me into that conversation that a lot of these scenes and had nothing to do with the wider mystery but I was like is this an area where Logan Marshall Green's character is showing me their true self? Mm -hmm. Am I seeing the real person there when he talks to his daughter about the tooth fairy Mm. and that she's worried about her sawtooth? Is this the moment where I'm getting glimpses of this real person before he is dramatically lying and acting like a different person to someone else in another conversation? So I wonder if also the actors know what this, you know, how movie actors get a script, but it might just be their scene. They don't know the full story. Or if they know the ins and outs of the mm. whole conspiracy. I'm so fascinated about this game in a writing sense because it seems like, yeah, maybe it was like 40 or 50 different scenes that all the actors were, were given scripts to and were performing. But you're taking them in completely out of order and at your own pace. I mean, no one is going to go through this story in the same way. You're all going to search and find things in a different way, find key elements of the plot come to you. Um, through your own investigations at your own time. So it's a really difficult thing to plot a story like this and to have it reveal its mysteries to you in a way that feels compelling um, because everyone's going to have a different path through it and Mm. find different things out. And from what I understand, there are hundreds of videos in this game and you only need to watch a fraction of them to get the mystery. So there is other things happening in here, side stories, Mm. red herrings that you can kind of go down on and not even realize that you are going down the wrong track. Um, but a compelling and interesting stories on their own. So there's one character, Angela Sarafin, who plays a sex worker. She plays a cam girl on the internet, and she gets involved into long, drawn conversations with another character who seems to only confide in the truth with her, um, but it's quite clear that she is performing and not telling the truth about who she is. And she keeps revealing details of who she might be in extended conversations, And I found myself going down a real rabbit hole trying to figure out who her character was, who she really was, who she was talking to, and whether the person that she was talking with was telling the truth to her as well or also making up lies. 
And so, well, that had seem- seemingly nothing to do with this weird FBI plotline that was also going on in the in the mix. It kept me driving between the relationship between these two characters. And maybe there is a connection there and I haven't found it yet because that's the other thing is there's so much footage to sift through here that maybe I haven't un- unpacked all the mysteries that I wanted to solve yet. Is this a groundbreaking game or is this a common category of video game? This feels unique. It feels pretty groundbreaking and it's, it's really exciting in the sense that, you know, this is a new way to tell narrative, a new way to explore emergent storytelling, which I find very exciting. Um, and I, I think it's a, a game that a lot of people can kind of jump into if they don't have traditional experience with games. Like this is not a game where you need a controller. This is not a game where you have to learn how to like use jumping mechanics or shoot a gun or any of that sort of stuff. All you have to do is listen, take notes. And if you can kind of use a computer screen or search in Google, you're kind of good to go. That basically. doesn't sound like the experience that a lot of like all gamers would want. Is this a very specific type of gamer that wants to take notes and be kind of information overloaded maybe but i think it taps into that sort of brain that you know puzzle games also Mm. come into because it's like solving a puzzle you're like looking at this thing go into another world don't you yeah and Mm. it's got that immersive feeling about it as well and that interactivity The, the only downside of this game i would say is that because you're searching keywords say for example you search like Iggy Pop or whatever because there is a moment where you want to search Iggy Pop I'm not going to explain why but it does come up in the story Um, but say you search Iggy Pop it will bring you to like the moment in the conversation in the video that that word is said um, to the second so say for example it's an eight minute long video and someone says Iggy Pop five minutes in then you're in at the five minute mark and if you want to find out what happened before someone said Iggy Pop you're rewinding that video ah. and it's the world's slowest rewind button. It takes oh. forever. You just kind of sit there rewinding for extended periods. Um, there are long moments in some of these videos where characters just sit there and listen, doing nothing. Sometimes they'll be washing dishes. Sometimes they'll just be sitting there watching the other person on the other side of the screen. But yeah, but you there can't might be a clue in those dishes. Right, so you want to rewind. So you want to rewind through all oh. these people sitting there and... And that's when I realized that this game, I think, is really interested in exploring those silent, quiet moments that people have where they're not saying anything, where they're just relaxing or sitting there. And I think it's exploring the idea of what it's like to eavesdrop and to to kind of breach someone's privacy in those moments, but also just the candid nature of, of visiting those moments or being within those moments as well. So I think that there is something going on here with that that whole concept of silence and space and and kind of dead moments in time that we we kind of don't take for granted when we're kind of going through the day i think that sam barlow who wrote this game has mentioned in interviews that he's interested in like video installation art that kind of plays on that same theme so you can see that in this game all right telling lies uh out a few weeks ago via who uh annapurna interactive brilliant thanks Thanks so much adam cheers Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Sarah, you had a big day yesterday. <laughs> Huge. I did. I had a facial for the first time in my life. In your life? You've never had a facial. What are you talking about? I don't about? know. Have you had a facial? Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I guess, what do you, well, it depends. What are your classes of facial? Going to a beauty place and getting mm. a facial. Like, and getting someone touch your face. Even I've had a facial. Yeah, I think, no. <laughs> Yeah. Daniel had a home facial. Yeah, um, maybe it doesn't count. Yeah. Hey, remember he told his... Yes, I do remember yeah. this, but... I got, a, I got a caked up face, muddy. You can't oh. leave. You know, but that's not a facial, is it? That's a... Well, it felt yeah. like a bloody facial. That, that was just a mask, wasn't it? 
Oh, right. Or was there, or was there more to just? Or did, you, did you just put on one layer? Or was there many kind of? There was, steps? There, was a, there was a heaps big process. Oh, so there we go. You've had a facial. <laughs> mm. What about if you get um like I've had some like facial scrub? Put that on in the shower. No. And wash that off. No, that's just exfoliating. And then put some toner. No, that's just having a good moisturise. No. That's just having a good skin a, text. That's routine. all stuff on my face. It's facial. No. Had a facial. No, that's a skincare routine. Okay. Um, As my beauty therapist yesterday told me. A therapist, right. And um, what it... I've, I did. Um, I did go to Bali and get massages and stuff. <laughs> Close once. So, and I can't remember if they did stuff to my face, but I feel that maybe they did. So, it's been a while. <laughs> oh, I ha- well, I had a voucher to a place that my friend bought me six months ago, actually, to go mm. and treat myself to relax. Um, but I don't really like massages. So, rather than get a massage, I got a facial because <gasps> I have a wedding to go to on Saturday, and I thought. That'd be nice to have my face glowing. Mm. How are you? So you don't like massages, but you're okay with people touching your face? No, as it turns out, not particularly. Okay, yeah, yeah tell us more. Uh, yes, I don't like. I just generally don't like being massaged or in by strangers, and I had no idea what to expect from the facial uh, experience. But you have to go in and fill a form and tell them what you would like, exp- what your facial desi- like goals are. Which oh. I didn't know. I just I wrote something on my face to look nice. <laughs> That's fair. Is that like, okay? Supposed, oh, I didn't yeah. know what to And then I looked around for words. It's a facial goal. Well, then I looked around for words that were on posters and I wrote them down too, <laughs> like plump and glowing. Really? Yeah. And so then when the therapist sat down, she goes, oh, you want plump, glowing skin? I said, yes. Wow. What's my facial goal? Just to... Because what do you want? You just want it to look good. Like, what, yeah. how do you explain? I don't know. Ryan Gosling? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. I, I guess you want. Um, I guess you want smooth skin. Yeah, that's nice. I'm gonna be touching my face now, thinking, what do I want? My goals and um, a um, a nice complexion. Yeah, I don't know. Right, and be, I feel like that's implied by getting a facial that you mm, want your yeah. skin to look. Not anyway, so I filled out this really lengthy form that had it also freaked me out. Except asked me what medicines, medication. I can't remember what medication. Anyway, wow. lots, lots more involved because I was getting a light, like one of those lights put on my face, some kind of oh, face like light. U- yeah, maybe... but it's red light, not UV rays or something. Just to give um, it a bit of a tan or is it no, to, it's... like laser zits or something? Who knows? I don't know. But you have to go and stick your zits. head in this box to start with. Ooh. And uh, they go, go go and put your head in the box and look in, and look down look down into the mirror. And when you look down into the mirror, you're, you're in some kind of UV light and it's showing you all the imperfections on your face. Oh, yeah. um, but then when you look up, the beauty therapist is looking <laughs> is it just, directly in front of you, so her eyes are staring. It oh was so God. strange. And also there's lots of blobs all over my face and I don't think I really needed to see that. I was really shocked by you it. You like that like that there's a um an ad for sun sunscreen and they yeah. put the people under the and everyone that's, can see all the sun damage. That's, that's what you done. get. So I saw all the sun damage, plus some kind of neon stripes. That, it, that weren't Stri- explained to me. Yeah. Okay. Maybe and it's just supposed to degrade you into submission. I, think, yeah. <laughs> I feel like that was the point. And then, then they come up with this little machine that's like when the doctor checks your uh, temperature and they put it in your ear and go beep, you know that, but yeah. they put it on your face and they go beep. And I said, what are you doing? And she goes, I'm checking the hydration level of your skin. Oh, okay. And she goes, it's 25. And I went, oh, that's great. That sounds good. <laughs> 
She but goes, it's not, is it? No. She said it should be 50. And I went, oh, my God, what is this? So it is like a humiliation process before, mm. then, to, before they build like, you back up. Before we build you, yes, yeah. right. So no matter what happens at the end of this facial, I'm going to feel better than yeah. this situation. Yeah, it's genius. I know, <laughs> isn't it? It's actual genius. I thought that. Your face, that, so did they, then they go, oh, you need you need to moisturise more? Well, so, then they say, well, the, well, the, the facial we're going to give you today will help combat this and okay. you know they ask you how many glasses of water you drink and things like that i know so Whoa. it was it was just not what i expected i thought it was going to be kind of more just meditative and, yes yeah. and then you do lie down on kind of a massage chair type thing the background music was like like synth death music it was like <laughs> <"Nah."> <laughs> <laughs> i was going i was so unrelaxed by that it was like Please. someone trying to do the Stranger Things soundtrack but doing it really oh, badly. Oh, dear, dear. On a Casio keyboard. Anyway, so that so then they like and then they then they kind of leave and they come in and she starts touching my face, which I didn't. I, I discovered as she was doing it that I'm not overly comfortable with people touching my head that I don't know, but it was fine. But then they you put, just close your eyes and go with. I it. did. I yeah. thought I've got to try mm. and relax into the death synth a little bit more. Can you give us another little <laughs> bit of that? I don't think anyone needs to hear that. No, I think I think we needed an extended version so someone could <laughs> auto tune it. No. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. Okay, thanks. And then they put she put this stuff on my face. Here's the other thing. This is terrifying. It's album of the week. <laughs> She puts this stuff on my face. Anyway, the, the, also, I've got to say, the therapist was lovely, mm. doing a great job, but I just had never been. Puts this stuff on my face and then goes, oh, it might sting. It might, um, you might feel some stinging, some burning, some tingling. That's all normal. Okay. And I go, okay. all right. And she goes, but you might feel nothing at all. And I go, okay. And she puts it on and then she goes, on a scale of one to ten, what's the stinging, tingling like? And I was like, I have no idea because I've never had a scale. How do I answer that question? Yes. So I went six to seven. She goes, oh, oh so it was tingling well, quite a bit. Yeah, quite a bit. But then I thought, she goes, well, because if it was too well, your much. six to seven could be someone else's ten. Right. I yeah. don't know. And she goes, if it's tingling too much, I'd take it immediately off. So then I start having some kind of panic oh, attack because I think. Yes, of course you do. And it increases. So that, so she does other things. She massages your head. While the, the while the stinging gets increases, mm-hmm. and then at the then after about a minute, I said, "Oh, it's pretty. It's probably a nine. And she goes, "Yeah, that's all right. I'm going to take it off now." But then I thought, I don't know if uh, it was just really yeah. the whole. Do? I know, I know. Here's the thing that I don't get is the um, it's the whole process seems quite. Medical, yeah, but I think that's the thing. I think but because they're there is trying no to medical training there, <laughs> is there? No, what well... training do you? I, I get that, uh, and but it's it, the beauty therapist. I understand that um, certain things you need to know and do to get to this. I'm not taking yeah, away there's knowledge, the things. like there's dermal yes. knowledge, yes. yes, yeah, but I think the way it's presented, <laughs> yes. Yes, uh, yes. Well, I think they medicalize it. Then, as I was there, I was like, "This is medicalized to make you feel like it's you need like that it's a medical mm. emergency that my skin is uh, hydrated to a level so of twenty five percent." Oh <laughs> my goodness! Yeah. But it, but it could only it could max out to sixty five. But I was like, "What if your face is seventy? Like, how hydrated? What's an overhydrated face like?" Water face. 
If you're gonna have a, po- if you're gonna ask for something out of ten, you need a point of reference, right? Yeah. Like you, ten would be lemon juice on a cut. Oh my god, that is! I need to do there for yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. I see. Maybe you would have thought to ask that question. Or, like, what should? What is ten? What is mm, the feeling of ten? Or pain is like you know a cheese grater along your shins. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I really should have asked that question. Mm. Well, what's a what's a seven? Yeah, probably a finger in a car door. <laughs> oh god, <laughs> I think that's my ten. <laughs> and, it, and then that bit is over, and she kind of wraps your face up and puts this light, like a mask, like a right. like like a super mask, like a Superman kind yeah. of mask, but right over your face that turns on and it's glowing. Your eyes are covered. This is amazing. And yeah. then she, but then she walks around the end of the bed and goes, "Can I take your socks off?" And I went, "What?" <laughs> And I went, oh, yeah, okay. And then sits down and starts oiling my feet and starts deep, like, deep tissue massaging my feet, which I had no idea mm, at no point in the conversation about my facial was mm. the – and and I was like, please don't touch my feet. They're what, disgusting. What were your foot massage had, goals? Oh, <laughs> did not have my – I didn't know if I had tinea. I don't know. But, like, before I think you – you'd know if you had tinea. Oh, I don't know. Well, it's winter. Yeah. yeah. I just – I am prepared to have someone see my feet or touch my feet so intimately. Yeah. And then I felt like I couldn't do anything. Ten minutes. Of a Ten foot, minutes. Ten minute foot massage. And I don't like being touched. And I wasn't prepared to have my feet touched. And what was the music in the background? <laughs> yeah. It's a good present. Thank you. <laughs> Triple R. Well, for feature creations, it's uh, it's time to bury ourselves in the world of bugs with Simon Hinckley. G'day, Simon. Morning, all. Hello. Hello. You've you brought some, uh, I don't know, like, how do we describe it? Some entomologically entertaining factoids or where are you going to take us? Well, I hope so. I thought rather than sort of looking at just one um, bug or spider or insect, we might look at some of the representations of insects in art. And I must say, I don't have an art history degree, so any art historians at home, please don't text in if I get anything wrong. Just just let it go through to the keeper. But there was an American entomologist who visited uh, about 180 museums and looked at more than 3,000 works of art, and he documented uh, the representation of insects in, I guess, probably most likely Western art. He found there were three peaks, um, the Dutch still lives of the 17th century, the Surrealist movement and the Art Nouveau movement. Um, one of the interesting insects that came out of that that sort of goes across cultures is the dragonfly. So it was important for the samurai warriors in the sense that for them, the dragonfly embodied uh, something that does the quick kill. So as well, we might have talked about dragonflies before, but huge eyes, yeah, yeah um, really amazing ability to fly, manoeuvre. When they target an insect, a really high uh, target of prey, a really high success rate. So if you're a warrior, you don't want six hours hand-to-hand combat. You want to go in, quick kill, onto the next. So the samurai armour often had uh, representations of dragonflies and things like that. And it's interesting in the sense that dragonflies for them were a really um, important thing, but for other parts of the world and other cultures in time, they were considered to be associated with the devil. So dragonflies were sometimes called the devil's dana because they would come along and sew your eyes and your mouth closed if you weren't paying attention. So it's interesting that insects can be, for some cultures, almost godlike, and for others, watch out, you'll have no eyes and mouth if this gets near you. And also they'd poke your eyes out if you were unlucky. So um, it's interesting that um, you can have these really different representations of the same creature. And where the dragonfly is interesting is that when the Art Nouveau movement came along in the late 19th, early 20th century, and I guess when we say Art Nouveau, one of the most famous uh, representations of Art Nouveau would be 
people imagine those entrances to the metro stations in Paris. That's that sort of classic Art Nouveau example. It's often very sinuous. There's often plants and very nature-based. Art Nouveau was strongly influenced by the opening up of Japan. So Japan had been a closed country for, I think, at least 200 years. And when Japan was forced to open its borders, Europe and America was flooded with all things Japanese. And they were very influenced by Art Nouveau, uh, by Japanese culture into the Art Nouveau movement. So often when you see those beautiful Tiffany stained glass lampshades or Art Nouveau pieces, that French furniture, there's often, if you look closely, there's ins- um, dragonflies and things like that inside them. So mm. really interesting that you can have something that's horrific cool. for some and yeah. really, really important for others. Um, one of the other artists that I really liked her um, take on something that's generally considered negative is Louise Bourgeois, who you may or may not know. She died recently. Um, it was nearly 100. She was a French artist. And if anyone's been to the Guggenheim in Bilbao or, or seen images of it, there's a massive uh, spider sculpture standing in front of the museum. It's like as high as the building. You can walk under it. And that's her most well-known work. It's been reproduced all around the world. And for her, for a lot of people, that's immediately, oh, hideous, giant-sized spider. Could there be Mm. anything worse? For her, she saw the spider as a really strong female protector uh, role against evil. So for her, she's she's taken this thing that's often considered evil and she's made it, no, no, that's a a female protective role. And she really, so you can stand under the spider and you can sort of be surrounded by the legs and that idea that for her. protected. Exactly. So it's a really. Exactly. So I really like the way she's turned that on its head. So yeah, if you Google Louise Bourgeois spider, you'll see her sculptures and hopefully they'll, they'll spring to mind. But the other really interesting movement was surrealism. And I guess the most well-known proponent would be Salvador Dali. So everyone Mm. can sort of picture his paintings. About 10% of his works featured insects, and he was really prolific. So he was really taken by insects. But interestingly, he was fascinated and horrified. So as a child, he was very into insects, but he had um, his brother had shot a, or a cousin had shot a, a bat, and he was looking after it. And he found it one morning covered in ants, and that's what ants will do. You know, find an injured thing, they'll, they'll attack it. That's food. So he was sort of quite he was revolt, repulsed by this and he developed a real fear, not just of ants, but also of grasshoppers of all things. Really? The, the idea that it would suddenly jump at you. Yeah, I so, get that. Yeah. So, <laughs> so um, a lot of his paintings, um, the NGV's got one. Unfortunately, there's not an, there's not an ant in there. I have checked. But um, if you're travelling around the world and you see Salvador Dali paintings, have a look and you've got a 10% chance of getting insects. He loved butterflies. Again, who doesn't? Pretty mm. colourful. Um, metamorphosis change, that sort of thing. He associated ants with decay, death, and also possibly repressed sexual desires because often the ants are around the mouth or there might be body parts they're sort of concentrated on. So he was very afraid of death and decay. And interestingly, in some of his famous paintings, the ants will all be gathered on, say, for example, um, a, a fob watch. And art historians might say, why would ants be on a fob watch? That's not food. So it leads you to question that fob watch, which theoretically leads you to question the whole concept of time, which is really interesting when you think about how much of the day and structure of the world is based on the concept of a second, a minute, an hour, a day. So he's sort of questioning that whole concept of time. But what I like about art history is, unless someone has said to Salvador Dali, what do the ants represent on this watch for you? If you don't have that written down, quote by Salvador Dali, it can be whatever you want it to be. Mm. So you could say, ants are incredibly industrious. Yeah, the it's fob watch. about work. Exactly. It's about the work ethic. It's about the industry and making that piece. Um, so that's what I really like about the use of insects in art, that you can, you can read the literature and go, yep, it could mean that, but you can also take it mm. to wherever you like. 
And the other really high peak of insects in art was the Dutch still lifes, which everyone can probably picture those beautiful um, vases of flowers. There's a little droplet of water hanging off one of the leaves. You might have some oysters. You might have a dead duck hanging in the corner, that sort of stuff. Often if you look closely, there'll be a fly or a butterfly or a caterpillar. And again, it's that idea that in the 17th century, lifespans were short. The plague would get you, an impacted molar would, t- would kill you, and if it didn't, the surgery would kill you. Life's, life was very cheap, and you would drop it the, you know, any day. So it's this idea of the beauty of the flowers, and it might also be the, the pleasure of the flesh, that idea of the, the flowering of youth and the beauty of youth and the, the attraction in that. But the artist would often put in a little fly as a reminder everything's going to die, you're going to die, and importantly, where's your soul going? So we were much more religious then. It was about, yep, you might want to be a bit debauched, but remember, you're going to die and rot, and where are you going to be for the rest of time? So there was all often these little hidden meanings. The oysters are obviously aphrodisiac, but it's really fascinating to look at a painting yeah. and go, oh, it's an oyster. Oh, actually, no, the cigar is a, is phallic. She's got her glove off, or oh, she's ready. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's really interesting that the things they couldn't say out loud, they could hide in the paintings. It's really fascinating. Do you, yeah. cool. Do you have any uh, artwork, bug-related artwork, maybe a couple of beetles playing poker or something in I, your house? I, <laughs> actually, I bought some beautiful glass beetles in Venice. Yeah. I don't. Yeah, they're really, really beautiful. Um, I always, if, and I, oh, I just bought when I was in, in Europe this year, I bought a beautiful brass, uh, bronze double headed snail. It's a bit sort of surrealist with um, a little snail hiding on the on the top of the thing. It's thank you. It's, it's made me think of my snail sculpture. It's really beautiful. Yeah, I do. I have so look for. Um, to I can't believe it. That's quite. Uh, that's a tour de force of art history. Uh, oh well, yeah, the phone line cool. hasn't lit up, so hopefully I haven't made any <laughs> epic oh, clangers. Don't, don't put it out there. So anyway, <laughs> get back to admiring your snails. Yeah. Can I quickly mention? Of course, yes. you can. Yes, thank please. you. Um, there's a uh, nocturnal event coming up at the museum. I think it's Friday the fourth of October. I don't know the bands off the top of my head. Sorry, but um, I, I would will... have looked them up. My don't, computer's don't turned off. It, I'm sure they'll be amazing. Um, I will be there. Um, we're doing a presentation, or we're staffing a table um, with a professor, uh, one of our great archivists, myself, and a few other people on the George Lyle collection, where the museum how how we got his fifty thousand specimens, his notebooks, his archives, his ah. his mono, monotype of the papers, all that sort of stuff. So there'll be five of us there. We don't want to be bored. Come and chat to us. Cool. Yeah. Good on you. Thanks, Simon. Thank you. Thanks, Simon. Triple. Bangara Dance Theatre is celebrating its landmark 30th anniversary season with the show 30 Years of 65,000, touring nationally and with three more performances this weekend in Melbourne. And its artistic director, Stephen Page, joins us now. Welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Pleasure. Uh, Take us back to the origins of this dance company. Oh, okay. Uh, 1989, um, big mob of... Blackfellas in Sydney or, you know, in college, dance college. Um, And I think just, uh, you know, once they were getting through their three or four years, just um, trying to find where to get professional work out there in the mainstream. So they all sat in the kitchen and uh, thought that they create a professional arm of the college um, in terms of a small performing group. So, uh, yeah, and anyway, the word got tossed around, what would it be called? And uh, Bangara actually means to make fire from the Rajri mob in New South Wales. So, yeah. yeah, in 1991, I was a young, cocky 25-year-old, and I put my hand up and I said I'd be the artistic director, and I'm bloody still here today. Wow. So, crazy, huh? Like, it's, we're at the beginning of our fourth decade, and um, yeah, really healthy, 18 full-time dancers, all Indigenous. Um, they're like athletes, you know? They come in early in the morning and they do their Pilates and yoga and 
bloody rehearsals. We're about to go to Canada in October for five weeks through Vancouver and Montreal and Toronto. And we head off into Six Nations, the First Nations mob, and we do workshops with them. And then we bring them over to the mainstream and put them in the theatre and see our show. So, yeah. No, it's great. Look, we're really, really um, – I've just been very fortunate. I've had great mob and families, whether they've been from remote or rural or regional, they've all entrusted this company with their stories to allow us to take it out to the mainstream. Could you imagine this company, like back when it's, you know, even when you came onto the scene, do you imagine that it would be what it is today? Like 30, like it's 30 years, that's incredible. Well, I think 30 know. years, let alone a bloody Indigenous company surviving. I mean, I think anything surviving in the arts. Mm. I mean, look at you, mob surviving. You yeah, know, right, right. you bloody just scratching the surface. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, and that's why in a cheeky way we've, we, we, you know, took the pun out of 30 years for 65,000 because, you know, it's scientifically proven. We carry culture. We express it in this contemporary way, in this modern day. And, uh yeah, look, I, no idea. Like, because you just, it's all about mob coming together, mm. believing in your vision. I mean, if you channel as a little clan, yeah. well, I suppose the modernisation of that is cultivating like Scientology and Hillsong. But <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you come together like a little clan and you just all believe in to continue your stories and you work in the profession of the arts, performing arts, and you use dance as a medium, and, you know, we have original music, sets, costumes. I mean, it's an a, Indigenous theatrical experience on stage. Wow. So, what yeah. do you think the biggest change has been that you've seen over those 30 years? Um, look, I, I, I'm just, I don't take the honor of running this company for granted. Like, mm. I, and look, you know, sometimes I, you know, that's why we do a lot of community work because we know out there in the welfare and the communities and real communities, I mean, you know, clans and mob and central desert don't even have clean drinking water, you know? And so, you know, we just try to get out there and empower kids mainly to reconnect to culture. So, you know, there's always challenges, but as I said, you know, when you've got a resource like this, I mean, it's the only major performing arts company that's indigenous. Like, we don't have a drama, we don't have a music, we don't have, you know, I mean, the opera sits on the top, the Australian Ballet sits on the top, 28, 29 major performing arts, we're down the bottom, funded-wise. That's okay, but when the government ring up and say, who do we want representing us overseas, they call Bangara, you know, they're not going to yeah. call the opera or the ballet. Mm, yeah. Uh, so it's sort of, you've you, you got a foot in each world, really. Um, and, yeah, look, we couldn't, we couldn't complain because we, we, we have resources. We're able to employ 18 strong Indigenous creative athletes and they get out there on stage and they not just only get to reconnect to their stories, but they, they get to perform in the mainstream and all around the world. Yeah. And from you know a kitchen table, this is your biggest show yet? <laughs> How do you know I danced at the kitchen table? <laughs> <laughs> no, you're, oh, probably- sorry, you're saying the mob. No, I did. I was growing up with 12 kids. My dad's um, Mun and Jelly. My mum's New Knuckle, so he's fresh water. My mum's salt water. And to what 12 kids and wife. So we actually grew up <laughs> um, performing on the kitchen table. So I was wow. just thinking, oh, okay, how did he go? That's so weird. <laughs> oh, no, 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 you, you're right. The, Who the, told the, you? Those graduates got around the kitchen table. <laughs> and look, you know, they're founding members. They're, they're elders of the past and they had the knowledge at the time and we're constantly uh, mm. in touch with them. Yeah, so, And that's what this program celebrates. You know, we're doing David Unipon's, uh Frances Rings, she's a Gukatha woman from South Australia. She was like 10 years dancer, moved into teaching, choreographed, and she's choreographed about 12 works for Bangara. Uh, and she wanted to get in the mind of David Unipon. He's on our $50 note. He's our first published Aboriginal author. He was born in the late 1800s. He died just three days short of... Um, 
being recognised as a human, you know, before in 1967, you know. Mm. So can you imagine him? He was segregated. He was into science. He was melting two worlds. Anyway, she dives into his head and she went back to Ralkin in South Australia to his mob and uh, got permission from them. They created this beautiful work in 2004. Fifteen years later, we're doing it. Right. And, uh, we're doing Stamping Ground, which is Czech, Czech choreographer, world-known contemporary choreographer, ran Netherlands Dance Theatre. He came out in 1980, uh, wanted to be inspired, saw traditional dance up in Grudel, 1,000 men, women, children. 1983, creates this work called Stamping Ground. It's his perspective, his response on seeing traditional dance, and uh, he's given us permission to do it. So it's almost come full cycle. It's come mm. back. I mean, he yeah. did it on Whitefellas. Uh, some of the motifs are okay. And then... <laughs> but, 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 but once he got back to our dancers and they embodied it, they just brought that spirit to connection. So in a way, we were laughing with him, saying, oh, your work's come back on country um, after 36 years. And the last section of the of the piece, the act, is just collections of our favourite little works, really. Wow. Uh, it's a big evening. It's a big yeah, arts. Yeah. I know you fellas won't go because you've got to get up early in the morning. I'll go, mate. Okay. <laughs> you've got three shows. <laughs> oh. No, <laughs> three shows left. No, tonight, uh, two shows tomorrow, one thirty and a 7.30. Yeah. What, what's the challenging your role as artistic director what's been the most oh look i um you know i mean I, you know my my two brothers but russell was a dancer in the company and unfortunately he passed away in 2002 my brother david does all the music you know i think he's a, i think they've got a few fans at this radio station because i think richard and a few of them used to play his music a lot uh he passed away in 2016 so we sort of started as a, the three black amigos in, in the beginning and then we had all these mob from traditional and Torres Strait communities and urban and we all came together so yeah i don't have them anymore but their spirits and the legacy there and and um yeah it's just uh, i think it's just people just people mm. you know relationships just we always move as a mob we yeah. move as a clan and we, they're always there to support that vision and yeah. you've got two shows back to back on saturday tomorrow yeah so they i don't know they get in about 10 or something and then they do a 130 it doesn't come down to about 20 to 4 and then They'll go and put their legs in ice buckets, and they're like oh, athletes. How do they do like, that? Yeah. They have, we have full-time physios and masseuse, in, and then they're literally doing a warm-up by six fifteen, and then on stage by seven thirty. And you're not getting out of the theatre until at least quarter to ten in the evening. Wow. So. When dancers come to a company, when they arrive at a company, are they that fit already? Or well, does it take a, lot of, kind of- a lot of them are urban. We've got to remember, like a lot of them uh, don't come. You know, English is their first language. You yeah. know? Uh, a lot of them are reconnecting to their culture. I mean, a lot of them come from urban assimilated displacements, you know, like generation. I mean, my mum and dad couldn't even, they couldn't even speak their language. I yeah. mean, they got uprooted and displaced from where they were. And so they couldn't even, you know, everything was secrecy and, 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 and they couldn't even celebrate that. So when I came along, so obsessed with my culture, and I'm the fairest of all the kids because my mum's dad's uh, Irish English. And uh, my brother used to say I belong to the milkman down the road. Um, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> we see milk bottles in the morning at five, and David would go, Stephen, your father's here. Uh, and, I, and I just cry every morning. So uh, I think maybe that trauma and torture um, got me to uh, <laughs> celebrate my culture. But anyway, look. Um, I don't even know what I was talking about then. I started oh, thinking no, about what my, mil- I started I re- thinking really about like what my father looked like. <laughs> well, <laughs> I um, never got to see him. 30, 30 years of 65,000 is uh, Bangara Dance Theatre's 30th anniversary season. There are three more performances to go in Melbourne. Friday night, that's tonight, Saturday afternoon and Saturday night. Go to bangara.com.au for more details. And uh, we've been getting all the history from uh, artistic director Stephen Page. You could be my brother. Uh, thanks, have, you seen, hey. have you seen Baker Boy? Dance. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. Well, Baker Boy, all his family, Marika Yinapunga, all the mob, they, they've been instrumental in Bangara's traditional knowledge. So, uh, yeah, cool. yeah, yeah, we know Bagus is a little, but he wore a little diaper and running around rapping in language. 
You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website.